0: You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin.
0: And I'm Tim Borden. And we have another returning guest to chat with today.
1: Yeah, we're really excited to welcome back Dr. Arno Werners today to talk about gastric ulcers. Um, this is a very important issue and one that I'm sure all, every one of you listening has had to deal with at some point. Um, Dr. Werner's focus is really talking about, um, diagnosing and and treating, um, gastric ulcers with different pharmaceuticals, but, um, he does talk a little bit about, um, the anatomy of the GI tract. So, um, if you're listening and, That's a little bit of a foreign concept for you. I urge you to pause real quickly. We left some great links in the show notes um, to to some information to help you understand that. Uh, Dr. Werners does a great job explaining it, but sometimes having a little visual can help you uh, get some context.
0: So uh, today's guest is Dr. Arno Werners. Uh, He obtained his doctor of veterinary medicine degree in 1999 and his PhD in 2005, which studied the molecular mechanisms and therapeutic interventions of equine endotoxemia. Arno worked as a lecturer, completed his residency in veterinary pharmacology and toxicology, and had clinical responsibilities while at Utrecht University. Arno then accepted a position at the University of Cambridge in 2010, before moving to St. George's in Grenada to help to head the pharmacology section at the School of Veterinary Medicine. Hi, Arno, and welcome back to the Sport Horse podcast.
2: Hi, Nicole and Tim. Uh, nice to be back again. So.
0: Last time you were on uh, the Sport Horse podcast, we discussed NSAIDs, and you did a really great job of providing an overview of NSAID treatment and some of the the pros and cons of those uh, drugs. Uh, One of the common side effects of chronic NSAID administration is gastric ulcers. We know that gastric ulcers are associated with other environmental stressors as well, such as travel, feeding schedules, and even certain sports. Can you discuss why gastric ulcers tend to form?
2: Yeah. Um, so in essence, the gastric, uh, the equine gastric ulcer syndrome, as it is actually uh, called these days, is very, very complex. And we can probably fill a whole podcast just talking about the syndrome itself uh, and all the different causes um, and ways to prevent it, et cetera, et cetera. I'll touch on some of these things because that makes talking about their uh, treatment a little bit easier. So one of the reasons why it is such a complex syndrome is the structure of the horse's stomach. So it actually has two anatomical regions, one that we call a squamous region, which is a non-glandular region and a glandular region. And particularly the glandular region is um, sort of quite resistant to acids um, because that's sort of the bottom part of the stomach. but and, and you would sort of say that that's a little bit more um, also resistant to ulcers, but that's not the case. So we do find ulcers in both parts and both regions of the stomach. Uh, but the prevalence of where the ulcers are, either in the non-glandular or the glandular region, uh, differs with breed, uh, the use of the horse, the level of training, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So also the how the damage occurs differs. So the ulcers in the non-glandular part, so in the squamous part, is called equine squamous gastric disease, or ESGD, Um, and that can be divided into primary and secondary disease, and primary is associated with very intensive management, which means... Um, So basically the gastrointestinal tract is completely normal, but because of uh, very intense uh, and uh, long training episodes um, sort of seem to um, um, cause these ulcerations in that non-glandular part. In the end, regardless of what causes it, um, both primary and secondary non-glandular region ulcerations or esgd is caused by um, the acid in the stomach that directly affects that part of the stomach um, it's as i said gastric acid but also volatile fatty acids and these volatile fatty acids are uh, the products of the degradation of cellulose so this happens for large part in the large um, intestines of the horse But also, they're byproducts of the fermentation of carbohydrates by gastric bacteria. So um, that means that large intestinal bacteria, as well as gastric uh, bacteria, can produce these volatile fatty acids. The horse uses them for uh, energy production. So in a sense, it's a good thing. Um, But again, they're acids. So um, everything that's acid has... A quite potentially quite extensive effect on that non glandular part of the non glandular region of the stomach. So, that means that particularly diets that are uh, high in concentrates are a risk factor. Why? Because it's starch or it's carbohydrates and it's broken down by these gastric bacteria to then form the volatile fatty acids. Um, exercise plays a role uh, particularly intensity and duration so the more intense the exercise is the longer the duration is um, and particularly when uh, the horse exercises in a gait faster than a walk what happens in the stomach which basically is sort of a large bag with fluid content, and then on top of the fluid content oftentimes is a layer of roughage. But the faster a horse exercises or walks or trots and gallops, that sort of stirs up everything. And that means that the gastric acid content and the volatile fatty acid content gets into contact with sort of the upper portion of the stomach that contains that non-glandular mucosa. um, And that then leads to damage to the mucosa, and then ultimately in uh, in ulcerations. So that's sort of the non-glandular portion. <laughs> now, we'll talk a little bit about the glandular portion as well, and, and the reason why we need to go over this a little bit again uh, is uh, because the treatment approach is slightly different. So for the glandular portion of the stomach, um, as I said, that's quite resistant to acid because that's where most of the acid usually sits. And that means that when there is a compromise of the mucosa, that's when we see um, ulcerations develop in that that region of the stomach. It's a little bit similar to uh, Crohn's disease in humans, um, but you know, we're, we're not quite sure whether, for example, inflammatory bowel disease contributes to ulcerations in that glandular part of the stomach. So when we talk about risk factors for the development of ulcers, particularly in this non-glandular part of the stomach, then the use of inappropriate doses of NSAIDs um, is, is probably the main factor, risk factor um, the risk is higher with the non-selective NSAIDs that we talked about in the uh, previous podcast. So that's phenobutazone, flunixin, uh, megalamine or benamine. Um, And the risk is higher with those non-selective NSAIDs than with the selective NSAIDs that inhibit sort of the bad enzyme and, and therefore um, alleviate inflammation. So equiox is a little bit safer for the stomach than butanbanamine. Normal use of N sets. So, if you use it exactly according to the label, so no increased doses, doses or increased um, um, the decreased dosing intervals. If you give it more often than according to the label, uh, then those sort of normal use of N sets doesn't really tend to cause that. So, if you use N sets at a higher dose, more frequently, or for a longer duration then uh, that sort of triggers the ulcers in that glandular part of the stomach. Stress seems to be a really important factor. Some of the things that you've already highlighted in uh, in your question, particularly in sort of the glandular portion of the stomach. And the more severe the stress, the more severe the ulcers are in that particular region of the stomach. Um, And stressful events, I'm quite sure that you're all aware of what they can be. Uh, but then again, um, it, apparently that's what something that sort of struck me is quite interesting is that the number of trainers and the number of caretakers uh, plays a role as well. So if there are more people that handle the same horse, then they're more likely to be, I would not necessarily say stressed out, but at least stressed and, and, and therefore uh, are a little bit more at risk of developing ulcers in those regions.
1: That's really a fascinating fact. I've never, never heard that before. Um, but it, it makes sense when you think about it. When, when the horse is slightly less familiar, slightly you know, less uh, secure in who they're interacting with day to day, it seems like an obvious stressor, just like it would be for any of us. So that's really interesting. Um, understanding that this is a really complex issue, and we're just sort of scratching the surface today. Um, I was thinking, as you were speaking about you know humans and the way that uh, we sort of think about our our digestive tract and, and the issues therein, and there are a lot of um, sort of precursor precursors and and symptoms and and. Um, things that you can experience before getting to the point of of having an ulcer or being diagnosed with an ulcer. And I imagine that's also the case with horses. Um, unfortunately, you know, our horses can't necessarily say, you know, oh, I have heartburn or, <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I'm feeling a little bit like I, I'm not absorbing all of my nutrients <laughs> properly. Um, so would you mind just briefly talking to us about, you know, some of the sort of preventative um, opportunities when horses start to show earlier signs before they've sort of gotten all the, all the way to the point of ulcers and needing treatment for that.
2: Yeah. um, Obviously prevention is always better than having to, having to use drugs. Um, I think that we'll get into the, into the drugs and what ones are best to use uh, a little bit later on. So um, prevention so, if you look at the risk factors, um, and particularly for ulcerations in the in the non-glandular part, um, where it's the acidity that comes up and, and 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 sort of damages, sort of directly damages the uh, the mucosa, then um, th- there's. Definitely. So, so diet plays a really important role. You know, if we if we talk about the amount of starch, carbohydrates in the food, um, and particularly in in a lot of the concentrates that we use in performance horses, um, have a lot of carbohydrates and have a lot of uh, of starch in it, and therefore there are more volatile fatty acids, and that in itself is a risk factor. Um, I understand that that's so the, the need for enough energy um is is probably in, in sort of layman's terms um why trainers slash owners will use a lot of concentrates but you know in my um life as a as an equine practitioner i i heard people talking about nine kilograms of concentrates um and that means that if you feed that much, then there's nothing for there's then no room in the stomach left for any roughage, um, and the roughage, as I sort of tried to explain at the beginning, is um, sort of a protective layer over the acidic uh, content in the bottom of the of the stomach. So it's really important that there that the horse does get enough roughage, also because that buffers a little bit. So I would say that those are definitely two uh, important things. Really look out for the diet. Make sure that it's a well-balanced diet. Um, We might uh, touch on that a little bit more, uh, but there are a lot of nutraceuticals and supplements that are marketed for either treatment or prevention of particularly ulcerations in the um, non-glandular portion. Uh, There's unfortunately quite limited evidence that they are very helpful or useful. Usually they contain antacids like uh, aluminum hydroxide or magnesium hydroxide. They do increase the pH for approximately two hours. So that could definitely be part of a preventative strategy. Um, But the pH is only... Uh, increased for about two hours. Um, And and that means that you would have to feed this every two hours, and that's something that's just not practical. Uh, There are other uh, complexes, pectin-lecithin complexes, um, and they sort of form a protective gel-like barrier in the stomach. Um, There is a little bit of evidence now that um, it can be useful in the prevention of ulcers. When you combine them with live yeast and magnesium hydroxide, um, so there are scientific papers that say that that helps preventing uh, the development of ulcers. Um, having said that, um, you know if you if we go back to the nine kilograms uh, of concentrates uh, that you feed your horse, and if you then use this supplement, then you know wh- whether whether that's going to be the right way. Um, I have my doubts, So I, th- I think that they go hand in hand and that you need, really need to look at the diet as well as potentially if, if you know, some horses that um, are a little bit more prone to stress, um, if you use nutraceuticals or supplements like that, then it can definitely be helpful in preventing.
1: Yeah, that's really great. I yeah, basically gather that you're telling me that I shouldn't, you know, eat pizza and and just take Tums, um, every day as a <laughs> it's probably not gonna, not gonna end that well. Um, but not enough about me. Um, so, uh, getting back to, uh, the treatment of gastric ulcers. So omeprazole is probably the most commonly used pharmaceutical to address gastric ulcers. How does omeprazole actually work? And are there any side effects that we should be aware of?
2: Yeah. So you're quite right there. Um, Omeprazole is most commonly used. Why? Because it works so well. Um, It's uh, what we call a proton pump inhibitor. And that means that it irreversibly inhibits a pump in one of the um, cells that line um, the stomach. The secretion of gastric acid um, depends on that pump. And that means that... uh, when we, when we block the pump, we block the um, transport of hydrogen from that cell. It's a parietal cell into the stomach. And in the stomach, um, in that same cell, there is also an exchange of chloride into the, um, into the stomach. So the hydrogen and the chloride form hydrogen chloride, and that's the uh, gastric acid. Um, so by preventing the um, secretion of hydrogen, you prevent the formation of the gastric acid. And that's actually um, exactly what they do. The issue with omeprazole is a little bit that it is um, inactivated by stomach stomach acid. Um, and, and that's, that's uh, very contradictory to the fact that it needs an acidic environment to be, um, to be metabolized into an active Component. So omeprazole in the parietal cell is transformed into the active compound and it then binds to that pump. Um, That's a sort of technical explanation of what happens. But what's more important clinically and practically is that um, there are many different formulations of omeprazole on the market now. And it's really important that the omeprazole gets through the stomach without being degraded by gastric acid. So as soon as it gets into the duodenum, the pH quite quickly becomes much higher, and that's when um, the imipramol is absorbed from the stomach, uh, sorry, from the uh, intestinal tract, and then goes back to the stomach through the blood supply of the stomach, and there it has its effect. Um, because there's so many different formulations on the market, it, it, some of them are really good at bypassing or getting omeprazole through the stomach quickly others are not so good at it um, and that means that we see quite uh, some variation in the efficacy of the different omeprazole formulations Um, I think it goes a little bit beyond this podcast to, to highlight which ones are uh, very effective and which ones aren't um, but just I would say be aware that there are differences there and that the fact that you buy the cheapest ones because it's a relative or used to be a relatively expensive drug uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it has the same potency as all the other ones.
0: That's that's really interesting, Arno. And I just had a quick question. So with omeprazole being uh, the proton pump inhibitor, um I think usually, is it usually around a month that omeprazole is recommended to be given? Or so with respect to like turning, essentially like turning off that proton pump, how does that sort of clear up ulcers in the long run, if that makes sense?
2: Yeah, so th- that's a good question. And it, it was one of the things I definitely wanted to touch on. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, information on how long you, you're supposed to treat um, there is something about, um, you know, most of the ulcers in that non-glandular portion of the stomach will um, will heal within ten to twenty-one, maybe twenty-eight days. So um, there's a consensus statement of of internal medicine, equine internal medicine specialists, and they say check after three weeks and then determine whether you need to continue yes or no for a week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, that means that 70 to 80% of all ulcers in that portion of the stomach um, will heal in that twenty-day 28-day uh, period. Okay. That that's not sorry to interrupt, but so that's not where it stops because then you need to make sure that you don't go back to your old routine and feed or you know so you need to work with, um, with your vet I think um and and look at what dietary changes you can make, what changes to the to the uh, training schedule and training routine you can make to prevent um, these ulcers to to uh, reoccur again
0: i think that's a, a really important point right is that like at least in the you know some people i talk to there seems to be an idea that you give omeprazole that solves this, but it really it needs to be in unison with lifestyle changes for the horse right Like, it's omeprazole does a good job of clearing up whatever gastric ulcers are there in the short term but it's not a long-term so- solution in a way i guess right like you need to
2: yeah,
0: yeah. address those lifestyle issues
2: yeah, that that's definitely true. Um, one could say, well, you know, I'm just gonna give omeprazole for the rest of the of the sporting life of the horse. But one of the things with omeprozole is is that it's sort of it it's able to speed up its own breakdown. So that means that after a particular period of time, the omeprazole is broken down by the body much quicker than initially in the first three to four weeks. Um, and that means that there's a significant decrease in the amount of omeprazole that gets into the blood and that reaches the stomach. And therefore you see a decrease in the effect of omeprazole. We see that with many other uh, drugs, uh, but omeprazole is is definitely one of those. And, and that sort of suggests that really long-term treatment initially has some effect, but then um, the effect just weans off. Um, and if you, if you don't make those lifestyle lifestyle changes um then despite the meprosol treatment the ulcerations might come back
0: really really interesting it it reminds me a little bit of just some of the coaches i had the opportunity to work with on the human side there were always those things in training where if an issue occurred it was viewed almost as a, as a failure and like okay like how do we make sure this doesn't happen again right and it's Like maybe if you do sustain some sort of injury in track and field or weightlifting or whatever, like the coach takes some responsibility and says, okay, like there was this issue, uh, it it happened, you know, stuff does happen in sport, but what are we going to change to move forward uh, outside of like just continuing a treatment? And so I think that's a really, really important point.
1: That's really great. So one of the things that I think it's really important to consider anytime um, we're talking about any pharmaceutical uh, administration is the potential adverse effects. So could you share with us a little bit what people should know in the case of, of, of omeprazole?
2: I think that omeprazole um, in general is a really safe drug and there's not so much um, to worry about when you use the drug. Uh however, there there's some things that I think are important to uh, to quickly highlight. Um, there might be diarrhea and that is because the acidity in the stomach serves as uh, a barrier for whatever bacteria um, we as humans ingest, but also horses ingest. Um, and when you increase the pH of the stomach by using a meprazole, that barrier is gone and there might be that it's known that there's a shift of the microbiota in the stomach and therefore also in the rest of the GI tract, and that can potentially lead to um, um, to some diarrhea. Uh, the other thing is that um, in humans, they've reported that there is an increased risk in fracture development in different age groups, uh, geriatric patients, but also infants, um, and it is something to be to be aware of. Um, there's no clear evidence yet that ameprazole that, uh, causes that in horses as well. There's a huge difference in, in sort of the treatment duration in horses compared to humans because humans take these drugs much, for a much longer period of time. Um, but there are some uh, groups interested in the topic that are currently uh, researching that to see if there's a link between ameprazole use and um, and fractures in horses. Um, and the last thing that I uh, thought was quite neat, um, and it's something that was discussed at the, um, AAEP conference in, uh, in December is that where in humans, we oftentimes see that when people are on long-term NSAID treatment, that they immediately get a proton pump inhibitor, um, as well to prevent, um, the occurrence of these gastric ulcers, in horses, they have now uh, quite recently discovered that co-prescribing butte, and it was particularly with butte. So, um, not quite sure what happens with, uh, when you combine them with other NSAIDs, but I assume that it's quite similar. Um, it is, it is basically contraindicated because it leads to an increase in intestinal complications. So then we talk about uh, colic. Uh, we talk about impactions. We talk about diarrhea um, and and some other um, potential GI adverse effects. Um, not quite sure how that exactly works. So we're not quite clear on that yet. Uh, but what it what it does tell us is that as long as we use the NSAIDs according to what's on the label. Um, then we don't have to worry too much about the ulcerations. And then the addition of omeprazole um, is not helpful.
0: Um, I I know you did some work to prepare for this uh, podcast episode, and I'm sure you read about maybe some other therapies that, and and you mentioned a few of the nutraceuticals and the supplements uh, a little bit before, but is there anything else coming along that you think is really exciting for the future that may be another avenue to treat ulcers? Or do you think omeprazole is still that gold standard and there's nothing else that's really out there to to reach the same level of efficacy
2: yeah so that depends a little bit on um whether the ulcer is in the non-glandular or the glandular portion of the of the stomach so particularly in the glandular portion they are more difficult to treat the ulcers in the uh, non-glandular portion i would say meprazole is still sort of the gold standard um there is with with almost everything in life there there are two forms of, of omeprazole and i usually sort of portray them as as the two hands uh, one of them fits really nicely on the receptor and the other one doesn't fit on the receptor so in the in the body that means that whatever omeprazole you give only a part of that is going to be active what pharmaceutical companies are now capable of doing is just isolating one of them so they what they do is they isolate the active one. um, And it means that you're not giving a Meprazole, but you're giving the active portion of a Meprazole. So there are some some evidence that that uh, works quite well um, too and and might even work a little bit better. It also um, stays in the body longer, so its effect is a little bit longer. And that means that uh, dosing uh, can decrease. Um, and oftentimes when dosing decreases, then uh, owner compliance uh, goes up a little bit because it's easier to give something once a day or every other day than when you have to give it two or three day, three times a day. So that um, is, is definitely uh, in the works. Um, so for the non-glandular region of the stomach, uh, you can also use histamine type 2 receptor blockers. Um, and, you know, people with gastric ulcers might have heard of cimetidine or ranitidine. Um, that are two of those H2 receptor blockers. Um, ranitidine is the one that's most commonly uh, used. Um, it's clearly less effective. When you compare it to omeprazole. Um, but interestingly enough, um, where I initially touched on the fact that about seventy to eighty percent of the ulcers in that non-glandular region um, heals after uh, twenty-eight days of treatment. If they're if they're not responding to the meprazole, then um, some of these, so some of the the twenty to thirty percent will respond to renitidine. So you can definitely use it as an alternative to omeprazole in the in the omeprazole resistant um, ulcers. What else is there? Well, not so much, um, I have to say. Um sucralfate um, is sort of I was I was as you already explained, I've I've been reading up a little bit on the literature, and then I thought, well, so it's basically it's a sort of a sugar that lays a a protective layer over the ulcer Uh, so it sort of sugar coats the ulcer and it means that it's not um the acid doesn't get to the ulcer and it can't uh, get worse um so it adheres to the mucosa the ulcerated mucosa but it also stimulates mucosal secretions and enhances blood flow and with that enhanced blood flow you also see a more rapid repair um Another drug that can be helpful um, is mesoprostol. That's a prostaglandin analog. So particularly for ulcers in the glandular portion of the stomach um, that we've said is, uh, is due to a disruption of the mucosa there. And oftentimes NSAIDs are involved. Well, we talked about the fact that NSAIDs inhibit prostaglandin synthesis. And that's how they reduce blood flow and they reduce mucus production and increase um, acid production and thereby uh, lead to those specific um, effects on the glandular portion. So if we now substitute with these prostaglandins, we sort of restore the normal physiology of the stomach. And that means that there's increased mucus production, bicarbonate um, secretion. And an inhibition of uh, gastric acid, uh, and that quite nicely sort of restores then um, the normal physiology of the of the stomach, and also uh, heals those NSAID uh, induced ulcers. But there's there's sort of a caveat there that you need to be really careful in. Uh, you actually, you can't use it in pregnant mares. You can't use it in nursing mares because it has a quite uh, strong. Um, effect on uh, uterine contractions so it leads to stronger contractions of the uterus and that means for women that are pregnant it's really you need to well you should not use that uh, that product yourself but to have someone else um, give it to the horse if the horse is on that particular product yeah I think I think that's um so we talked already a little bit about the uh, the nutraceuticals. Um, so I think that that's basically, um, those are the alternatives and, and probably to go back to the glandular portion ulceration or the glandular region ulcerations, what we see there is that a combination of omeprazole and sucralfate, uh, work better than omeprazole alone. So you see increased healing rates and mesoprostol is even better than the combination of the omeprazole and sucralfate. So that's sort of um the the options that you have for the for the glandular portion and the ulcerations that we see there.
1: That's all really fascinating. I I think it's important to note, you know, what you've documented so far is that we need to know exactly, you know, where the ulcers are that are are being treated to know how to treat them properly and that um you know just treating the problem and not making any changes to the to the causes of the problem is probably not going to be the most productive way forward but and on top of that knowing that every every patient is different and going to respond differently to treatment um but can you just speak a little bit generally to prognosis for sport horses that do have gastric ulcers assuming that they're diagnosed properly treated properly and efforts are made to remove the the direct ca- causes that are known
2: yeah yeah no, sure, um, and I'm I'm fully with you there. You know, you, you need a proper diagnosis, and that means that um, um, you need a gastroscopy of the stomach to be able to see where they where these ulcers are and how severe they are. There's a whole grading system, um, and um, I think it's really useful, uh, as I alluded to earlier as well. Is that sort of a repeat gastroscopy after uh, about three weeks of treatment is very helpful too to see whether there's improvement yes or no yes or no. Um, but then, so if, if you follow all those steps and and uh, and you you do the right things, then um, I would say that the prognosis of the equine gastric ulcer syndrome is is good. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to treat the glandular ulcerations than the non-glandular region ulcerations. Um, and um yeah, so I would say that that with everything that we've discussed before already, um, that um with the lifestyle changes, as soon as these ulcers heal, then um then the prognosis is good.
0: So thanks so much, Arno. That was really fascinating content. I think you did a great job of highlighting uh, you know, the, the, the situation that a lot of, I think, sport horse trainers face, uh, at least with a few horses in their barn from time to time. So uh, a great overview of some of the options out there and especially some of those lifestyle changes um, that should be made or Uh, you know, I appreciate that everyone's a little bit constrained based on their facility and, you know, maybe a show schedule and so on, but looking to do the absolute best they can for the horse. And, and, uh, so I think you've done a great job with that. Uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, we always learn a lot when you're on here and I know that we're going to be bugging you again in the future for other topics as well. So thank you so much.
2: Well, it was a pleasure. It was uh, fun talking to you again. And um, I I agree, it's, um, it's a really important topic. And uh, to be able to highlight some of the important things when you have to use this uh, for your horses is, um, yeah, it's a pleasure. And it's, it's fun to be with you in this podcast.
1: The pleasure is all ours. Thanks again, Arno. As usual, Dr. Werners was such an awesome guest and gave us a lot of food for thought. One of the things that really stood out to me today during this conversation, and I don't remember, I think it was maybe a point that you actually raised, Tim, um, was that it's really important to properly diagnose gastric ulcers and then to make a plan to treat them that'll work for that particular horse. But if you're not actually looking at the root causes and trying to address those as well, then, um, you know, you, you're maybe not doing everything you can to prevent them from recurring again in the future. So I think it was a, a really... Important point that you brought up, and that um, you know, Dr. Werner's really relayed and 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 hit home on that we have to look at these things holistically. um, Otherwise, we're just diagnosing and treating, diagnosing and treating, and and not stopping the cycle from repeating itself.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think those are really great points, Nicole. And uh, as you mentioned, it was a great conversation. I always uh, really enjoy chatting with Arnold. There's so much uh, information and knowledge up there. and I think just going through that episode, uh, to your points, it makes you take a bit of a step back and just to think about like, are we truly addressing this? Because like, gastric ulcers are a major issue. I can't imagine like any athlete, if you think about yourself, if you were struggling with, with ulcers and you were going to go out and maybe train for a marathon or, you know, train for weightlifting or whatever, like, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be a major performance inhibitor. And I think sometimes we, Maybe don't do everything we can to, you know, address this uh, this issue in horses. And I think it's one of those things where as the signs start to present, like it needs to, the veterinarian needs to come in asap, uh, make a diagnosis if if there is one to be made. And then, uh, as Arna was saying, like make sure you actually follow the guidelines for some of those different treatments that are out there. Um, it's you know, amoxicil probably is something that shouldn't be lived on. That you should go through the course, which is you know, a, a month or whatever, and then uh, make sure you've modified those factors in the horse's program and get back and hopefully the horse is, is back and ready to go. Uh, so I think just really important concepts like that. And and I think maybe a, a little bit of a push as well and a challenge to everyone listening at home to to make sure that you're always on the lookout for this issue, for these uh, for equine uh, gastric ulcer syndrome. And if it is popping up, like do what, everything you can in your power to to get that addressed, because not only for the performance side but also the mental making sure the horse is comfortable that it's uh, in a, a good headspace, space it's enjoying its life i think it's, it's really important for all of those uh, aspects
1: yeah and one of those factors that can be really crucial to both treating and preventing gastric ulcers is nutrition and i'm really excited that we're actually working on um, a couple nutrition episodes coming your way so if anyone has um, nutrition related questions that they'd like us to 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 focus on or any, um, topics, uh, generally that you'd like to learn about, um, definitely send that our way. You could either DM us on, um, Instagram at sport horse series or on Facebook, also sport horse series. Uh, we would love, love, love to hear from you as usual. You can also find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. As I just mentioned, you can follow us at Sport Horse Series on Instagram and on Facebook. Also, be sure to follow and uh, review us on your podcast apps wherever you're listening today. You can also have to all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network, <laughs> Horse Radio Network, with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search Horse Radio Network. Here's to keeping your sport horses happy and healthy.